Hello and welcome to the July 17th, 2023 edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I am Anthony Bardaway, and this will be a solo episode. This episode will be broken up into three broad segments, the first on uh, the various combat and other uh, war-related topics that have come up since our last episode. Then we'll be going on to the rather extensive amount of diplomatic news that came out involving the NATO summit in Vilnius, and also the various diplomatic travels that Zelensky took in the lead-up to it. And finally, an update on some of the other news from last episode regarding the death of Victoria Amalina. And we'll be closing off with a member question. So keep in mind that we do like to have these member questions. So if you're a follower of us on Patreon, um, send us a question. We really want to do this segment a bit more often where we uh, react directly to what people want to hear about. So now into our combat update. The Ukrainian offensive for the summer is continuing at its slow grinding pace. Uh, progress continues to be made, if not on a day-to-day, then at least a week-to-week timeline. It is moving forward, though the difficulties involving equipment, uh, having to clear out these minefields without the air support that uh, Ukraine has been hoping for in the form of F-16s from its allies that they are not following through on. Uh, It's a a slow grind, but it is moving forward, and that's just what has to be uh, with the equipment and um, setting that is available. If Western partners are so concerned about it going slow enough, give more weapons. Quite simple. But first, we'll look at Bakhmut which is, again, where a pretty significant amount of progress that has been made has been made. In both the north and the south of the city, there have been uh, rather rapid gains, uh, again, day after day, week after week. Um, So first, looking to the north of the city, uh, Berhivka, which is the town to the north of Bakhmut, uh, Ukraine has been not able to capture it yet, but has been uh, launching attacks that have gotten into the town itself on occasion before being driven back. Uh, In the coming weeks, we are likely to see this town being taken by Ukraine, and then after that happens, Ukraine will be able to take the commanding heights to the north of Bakhmut. And if that happens, then the city itself will be under immense pressure from Ukrainian artillery, more so than it already is. Again, this is a reverse of the situation of Russia taking Bakhmut, where after they were able to take these heights of the city, again, not very high heights, but any amount of heights will will do you, they were able to kind of put the crush on the city much harder after that. And now that's happening in the opposite direction, where Ukraine is taking back that perimeter. And after that happens, um, Bakhmut will be a very serious liability for the Russians. Uh, It already is. Uh, Ukraine has claimed that it has fire control over the entrances and exits of the city, making resupply in this area very difficult. Again, a mirror image of what happened to Ukraine is now happening to Russia instead. Also, after Berhivka is taken, we are looking at multiple different encirclements that could occur to the north of the city, at least uh, two are readily presenting themselves. The first tracing along the route of the river leading into Berhivka from the west, another to go straight north from Berhivka, and a third, much larger encirclement will, will take much more time and effort, is that there is a Ukrainian advance uh, approaching Solidar from the north, and if they're able to do that, then there's just a, a large, large area that would be nearly encircled, including primarily Krasnohora, Vlahodatne, etc. So the north of Bakhmut is looking under danger of being overrun with multiple different ways that that could happen from the smallest to the largest over time. If you look to the south of the city, this is where the advancements have actually been the fastest. Uh, Klashivka, I've said that um, it looked like Klashivka could be falling soon. And again, Ukrainian forces have not taken the city, 
but they are directly abutting it. There have been attacks into against the city, uh, well, city, it's a village, really, itself, and the Russians cannot hold out there too much longer. Too much longer, of course, being a relative term. But if anything's going to happen next, I'm thinking it will be the fall of Lashivka, which would secure the access to Bakhmut, or which would seriously endanger uh, Bakhmut from the southern direction, like Brahivka does from the north. Then to look at the south, the advances have been slower, but the main thing to keep an eye on right, right now is uh, Robotine. Uh, this village is representative of the first uh, line of defenses, the first serious, um, very well-built line of defenses within the Zaporizhia Oblast. Uh, this is being referred to as the Tavaria direction, referring to the uh, historical region, uh, former imperial governorate of uh, Tavaria, which is basically uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia Oblasts. Uh, primarily the southern parts of them, which match up pretty well to what is currently under occupation. So if you see the word Tavria, that's what it's referring to, Herson and Zaporizhia. Um, it's a historical term uh, referring to the area basically between the Dnipro River and uh, the city of Berdyansk. So in case you're confused on that point, I thought it would be good to kind of explain what that means since it's being used so often now. But yeah, so if they're able to break into Robotine, that is the first um, major line of defenses that would have been breached. And what this represents is basically if this first line can be breached, it not only weakens the line as a whole, it allows the Ukrainians to attack this line from the side and the rear as well, if everything goes well. But it also is a proof of concept of how to destroy the next lines. And we're looking at uh, between three, sometimes four lines of defenses in between the front line and Crimea. And so we're looking at the first of, let's call it three, that is in danger of collapsing. There have also been Ukrainian advances further east at Rivnopil, which was captured and moved on from, as well as along the coast of the Dnipro River which is now much smaller due to the Kherson flood and the destruction of the Kokovka Dam, but with that barrier still in mind in that area as well. The bad news, on the other hand, is that the Russians have made some advances around Kremina, but these are rather minor, and especially minor compared to the advances that Ukraine has been making. Um, so I'm not quite seeing what their logic is of trying to advance in Kremina, which has been very flexible, we'll say, as far as the front line for most of this time. There has been uh, back and forth a lot. They got a little bit forward in this last week, but it's not a serious cause of concern, especially how far it is away from uh, the other major battles. So that is our broad um, combat update right now. But there is one other attack that is, of course, making the news right now, the Kurt Strait Bridge, the bridge connecting Crimea to Russia, of course, over the Kurt Strait, which attacks, which attaches the Azov Sea to the Black Sea, it was hit again by presumably, it seems, a Ukrainian water drone, um, a, a remote-controlled boat with a bomb on it that crashed into the bridge and took out the the not train side, which is more important. Uh, it's a shame that it did not destroy the train side, but it did destroy a span of the uh, the road for cars, trucks, and that kind of thing, which is closing down Crimea again to the the Russian to to Russia itself. There isn't a whole lot to say on this other than it's 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 good <laughs> that it is uh, quite amusing considering how Russia has staked uh, so much of their prestige on the idea of Crimea being this integral and safe part of Russia, and how the advances in Ukraine's range of attacks have left that very much in question for them. They do not actually have control over Crimea. It is always at risk of being cut off, of attacked, 
There have been attacks for so long against Sevastopol. Um, it's the actual practical effects of this attack will be minor because, again, it is just the, the road rather than the train, and the train is the important one. But it is a serious blow to their credibility, to their prestige, makes people at home question just how in control of the situation they can possibly be if this Crimea Bridge can be struck not just once, but now twice, which means who knows how many more times in the future. And speaking of these behind enemy lines attacks, there was a rather prominent assassination recently. Stanislav Ryzitsky was the commander of the Krasnodar submarine. The Krasnodar submarine is responsible for many of the missile attacks against Ukraine, including the attack on the Vinitsa Cultural Center, which killed over two dozen people including three children, the most uh, famous of these victims being Lisa, a girl with disabilities whose mother was a serious proponent of you know, advancing the rights of people with disabilities in Ukraine, spreading awareness, spreading information. Uh, the mother lived, her child died, and that became one more of the, unfortunately, many tragic stories which define what Russia does to Ukrainians. But Ryzhitsky was not safe, it turned out. While on a morning run, while on a run in Krasnodar, he was shot multiple times in the front and back by what they claim they know who the assailant is, but let's just say I have my doubts that this is really, uh, they, they really found the man irresponsible. Apparently, he had been tracking his activities on a running app. So, you know, you go out for your run, say, this is the route that I did. And it turns out that telling what your normal route is in a empty park due to the weather is a great, great way of telling people who you may not want to know where you are, where you are. And that was used in order to kill him. So keep that in mind for people who use these running apps. It's not always a fantastic idea to share your information, your physical uh, location with the world at all times. Uh, you are probably not a murderer, but this guy was. And for him, that meant payback eventually came. The Russians arrested a man named Sergei Denisenko, a 64-year-old man who was the former head of the Ukrainian Shotokan Karate Association. He had been a coach for karate teams in both Ukraine and Russia but he had been a resident of the city for a while. So one of two things happened. Either he was an agent of the Ukrainian state who carried out this assassination, or they needed to find a scapegoat, and a good scapegoat was this Ukrainian guy who they could pin it on. So one of the two scenarios, who knows which one is which. Next, more information about the state of the Russian military in the form of what happened after the Wagner coup, the, this big attack on the Russian government by the Wagner group and Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, trying to, their march for justice, they called it, to uh, carry out this vendetta against the leadership of the military and, and uh, defense ministry. What has happened since then? What has been the fallout? And honestly, not a whole lot. Uh, so we can divide this up between things that went against Wagner and things that went for Wagner since that time, and starting with against. So first, we have to look at how much of their heavy equipment and many of their small arms as well have been transferred away from the Wagner group to the National Guard. The National Guard, the Rosgardia, is considered the kind of defender of the regime itself. They are Putin's Praetorian Guard. So by transferring this equipment not to the military, but rather the National Guard, it is a clear sign that what the priority is, is to shut down any future coup attempts that could happen, because the National Guard will be the ones stopping that coup attempt, not that they did it very well last time around. The Russian media has also come out with all kinds of government propaganda attacking Prigozhin and Wagner Group. They have uh, called the battle for Bakhmut like this basically pointless battle. They have called many of these 
members of Wagner Group, you know, traitors, just really trashing these people uh, from the desk of RT and other government news sources in order to poison the people against Wagner Group after it was shown that many of them sympathize with Wagner Group. How many of people in Rostov kind of supported Wagner when they started their coup, and that's something the Russian government really has to look out for. And the main way to prevent people from having these sympathies, I guess, is through this massive uh, information campaign against them. But things in Wagner's favor is that they're the leaders of Wagner were able to meet with Putin, and it seemed as though the meeting went pretty well. Uh, of course, like I said, most of their heavy equipment was stripped of them. Um, also, I'd like to add on the other side of the information war, uh, Pogosian's media network was dismantled, which included the so-called troll factory that's pretty famous for its uh, involvement in, for example, the election of President Trump. A lot of the propaganda that people think of in the form of Russian interference in that election basically meant, to a large extent, Progrosian's uh, media team through their troll farms and such. But that's all closed down now. But yeah, so this meeting with Putin seemed to go well. Uh, there seems to at least be an understanding that no further actions will be taken against the leadership of Wagner Group. Uh, they will be allowed to continue their activities in Belarus for now though their future after that seems uncertain. They are not likely to be happy to just sit in Belarus doing nothing. Um, so we'd still have to keep an eye on for, uh, for what their future will be there. And this one, this next thing, I don't know if it's for or against them, but Putin is saying that Wagner Group never legally existed in the first place. Um, this was the older stance from before the full-scale invasion was that Wagner, uh, because it is a mercenary group and mercenary groups have no, do not legally exist in Russia. You can't have one in Russia. Therefore, Wagner Group was not a legal entity in Russia, even though this was a very transparent lie. So by saying that Wagner, quote unquote, doesn't exist, uh, this can mean one of two things. One, which is what I think may be one of the more important factors, is that's a way of saying that they can't do more things against Wagner because there's no Wagner to do things against. So whatever status quo is there, there there's not going to be this um, wide-ranging legal hunt for different elements and leftovers and satellite companies of Wagner Group because there's no standing to go after them because they don't exist. I think that's what it mainly means. But that is seems a bit counterintuitive compared to the other example, which is just a way of it discrediting Wagner Group uh, and detaching it from the Russian war effort. Like they're not soldiers, they're just random mercenaries that we found on the side of the street. And also one that in this other bit of news from this from the Wagner fallout is it's not entirely sure why, but it seems as though many of the figures surrounding the coup, but didn't take part in the coup, are the ones taking the brunt of uh, Putin's hitbacks, as it were. So Surovikin, the guy who we talked about as being first an ally of Wagner Group, and then the guy who stayed out of it, he's still really nowhere to be seen, and many of the military figures surrounding him have been removed from their positions. And the second is Major General Igor Popov, who was a leader of the Russian forces in Zaporizhia Oblast, one of them anyway. Um, he was criticizing Grasimov for a number of reasons, including a lack of supply, lying about um, casualties, that kind of thing. And he got fired. So he's gone. Surovikin seems to be gone. Many of Surovikin's um, deputies seem to be gone. And it seems as though there's going to be very much a crunch on anyone who is too critical of Gerasimov or Shoigu, but because they do not have the force and the political representation that Prigozhin does, even though Prigozhin went obviously much farther in his criticism by you know murdering Russian pilots, uh, he'll get off, but they won't because they didn't have the independent power that Prigozhin did. So that's where we're standing right now on Wagner. We'll keep you updated 
as this progresses, but I think that is just the main direction this will progress in is this further purge of military officials who are uh, a bit too squirrely about what they think about Kodasimov Shoigu, the Ministry of Defense, and the military command. Next up, diplomatic news, and it was very, very busy recently. This was all in the lead-up to the NATO summit in Vilnius. There is the yearly summit where the various leaders of NATO countries, along with any other, one, any other leaders or politicians, figures that they may invite, uh, will meet to decide on the future of the alliance, any of the particulars they need to straighten out, etc. And of course, the most important question was Ukraine. And I'm sorry to say that for the most part, but not entirely, I'll get to some of the other side of it in a bit, but for the most part, this was a very big disappointment for Ukraine. The lack of commitments was just brutal to watch. Uh, so the Ukrainians did not go into this summit expecting to join NATO. That is not what these complaints are about. Um, no one expected that, you know, this time, this week, that Ukraine would be a full member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. That's not the case. But what was expected would there be some kind of concrete terms on which that Ukraine would join the alliance. A timeline, requirements, something that we could dig our teeth into and hold the people who made those promises to account of saying, okay, Ukraine uh, finished off these assignments. Now we are part of NATO. And that was withheld, at least on a formal level. And formally, the kinds of guarantees that Ukraine has received were not any more serious than the ones that they have gotten in the past. A general sense of Ukraine's future is with NATO, you'll be let in eventually, but not now, and we're not saying when. The kind of... Uh, the kind of strategic ambiguity, which I would definitely argue was one of the factors that led to this war. If Ukraine had an actual invitation to NATO, Russia would not have invaded, despite the fact that they're saying that uh, what they were doing was to stop the spread of NATO. In reality, if NATO spread, then Russia would not have done anything. So, of course, consternation from Zelensky at the conference itself from throughout the Ukrainian um, news and NGO and civil society spheres, lots of anger at this lack of commitment. But there were more informal commitments. And the one that stood out to me was Biden was asked, President Biden was asked when Ukraine would join NATO. And what he said in a rather off the cuff and joking way was, an hour and 20 minutes after the war was over, which has always been my and everyone else's sense of when Ukraine could join NATO was we're not going to join during the war, but after the war, uh, whatever after the war may mean, Ukraine would then join NATO, which is what Biden said, but it would be real nice if that was an official statement and not an off-the-cuff joke. There is also some rumor uh, that was backed up by many Ukrainian officials who seemed to believe this to be the case, that Ukraine's NATO membership is being held as a token at the bargaining table. So, for example, if you end this war, uh, Ukraine will not be a member of NATO, and they want to keep that. They want to keep the ability to say that, which, of course, is just playing into Russia's hands. Ukraine will not be safe without concrete security protections that can only be provided for by an actual alliance, not vagaries about we'll support you if something bad happens. But other than that, there were other commitments made about sending more weapons to Ukraine. France will be providing uh, long-range missiles, the kinds of which have been used to great effect in destroying uh, Russian logistics points and command centers far away from the enemy lines, uh, similar to the Storm Shadows. So it wasn't all bad. If you look around the corners, if you look at the smaller details, not all was bad for Ukraine, but the main news was this frustrations over not being given 
uh, a timeline for Ukraine NATO ascension. And one thing I'll put in the neutral category there is the membership action plan process. The membership action plan is basically a list of requirements that one that a country has to make in order to uh, begin the process of NATO ascension. These can often take many years in order to complete. Uh, they involve anti-corruption procedures, uh, bringing your military more in line with how NATO armies are organized and how they fight, the, the kinds of arms that are used, the kind of organizational structure that is used, um, the kind of supply systems and logistic systems that are used in order to integrate with NATO, along with various uh, democratic uh, requirements. Uh, it was decided that Ukraine would not have to go through a formal map process. Ukrainian military is frankly better than most NATO militaries. Um, NATO militaries have to learn from Ukraine more so than the other way around. So the idea of having to go through this process of making your military better, kind of absurd in Ukraine's case. So on one hand, that is good. Um, this bureaucratic step is be able to be stepped aside, meaning that it is only the political decision rather than both the political and procedural. But if you look at that the other way, a membership action plan is one of these uh, promises that if you go through these steps, you will join NATO. So on one hand, it gets rid of an obstacle to NATO ascension. It also gets rid of a ladder to NATO ascension. So we kind of have to play that both ways. Uh, meanwhile, President Zelensky took numerous trips in the run-up to this NATO summit and did various forms of diplomacy with several of Ukraine's neighbors, supporters, and frenemies. Uh, the first one I'll talk about here is Bulgaria. Bulgaria has been in a strange situation where the government has been changing so many times that you say that Bulgaria has a pro-Ukrainian, pro-European, pro-Russian uh, government and members of the the executive at any given time. That can change again in a few months, so you never really know. Uh, but as of right now, they basically have a pro-Ukraine, pro-European parliament and prime minister and a pro-Russian president. So Zelensky had a rather heated meeting with Bulgarian pro-Russian president Thurman Radev, in which Radev said that there is no military solution to the war, that we should not be militarily supporting Ukraine because it's never going to win anyway, and we need to have a ceasefire and a diplomatic agreement. The usual stuff to which Zelensky utterly dominated him. Uh, it was quite a, a scene to watch, watching Redev, the, the president of another country, being kind of berated like a small child, like hiding beneath his hands, uh, while Zelensky just tore his arguments apart. Like If Russia invaded Bulgaria and tried to you know, conquer you, would you just sit there and take it? And after this point, in order to continue this discussion, Radov actually called for press to leave the room. Uh, I partially think this has had to do with so he could speak a bit more freely and uh, maybe not have to live up to his demands as this pro-Russian politician, but also he was just being humiliated. So who knows what exactly his uh, full intentions were for having this closed meeting afterwards. And of course, afterwards, the prime minister of Bulgaria sent his own condemnations for what the president said. So Bulgaria is not a pro-Russian country, it just has a pro-Russian president as opposed to a uh, broadly pro-Ukrainian public and government. A government which has been the supplier of a lot of Ukraine's uh, fuel, especially uh, artillery shells and other older things that Bulgaria has a a uh, former Soviet bloc country, not in the Soviet Union, but former Soviet bloc country was more equipped to provide rather than France or Germany or the United States, which had an entirely different um, type of production. So in the end, Bulgaria turned out to be a rather loud affair, but it seemed as though it went well in general because he had the backing of the Bulgarian government. Next, we'll talk about Poland. Poland, of course, has been one of Ukraine's closest allies during this conflict. 
But the conditions that uh, Zelensky met with the Polish leadership under were about something much darker in the shared history here. Uh, Zelensky was in attendance at a commemoration for the victims of the Volyn massacres, sometimes called the Volyn Genocide. Now, Volynia is a region in northwestern Ukraine that formerly had a lot of Polish people in it. Much of Western Ukraine, most much of Ukraine in general, as a part of the various Polish um, political organizations from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to the interwar uh, Polish Second Republic, were a, so there was a part of Poland, had a lot of Polish heritage, had a lot of Polish people, and it's difficult to get into how complicated and often fraught this relationship between Polish people and Ukrainian people has been over the centuries. I don't have a lot of time in order to explain it fully, but I'll try to give a little truncated explanation now. But basically, how this story starts is with really the history of Ukraine in general. Uh, many of Ukraine's national heroes were national heroes because of their resistance against Polish rule. And many of these conflicts were quite ugly. The Khmelnytsky uprising, the Kaidamak uprisings, led to a lot of massacres. But fast forward a bit, Poland gets conquered by Russia. Much of the Ukrainian lands that were Polish get absorbed into the Russian Empire, aside from the ones that got absorbed into the Austrian Empire. World War I happens, and now there is a new Polish Republic, the Second Polish Republic. And in here, we now have much more modern ideas of nationalism, of who is who, uh, what before had been a very flexible concept of who would be Ukrainian and who would be Polish. These identities often overlapped, uh, and very complicated idea that I'm not going to describe now, hopefully at a later time. But at a point, the Second Polish Republic really wanted to Polonize uh, the lands of what is now Western Ukraine, the Galicia region and the Volinia region. Um, they sent colonists to make the Polish communities that were already existing there larger. They expanded the Catholic Church's um, power within these areas. And many of this Polonization was at the expense of Ukrainians, leading to a lot of unrest amongst Ukrainian population, especially in the later years of the Polish Republic, when the government became much more nationalistic. And it was in this time that the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, difficult topic to talk about, um, was a, quite frankly, fascist terrorist group. Um, you can always argue the merits of terrorism as a tactic, but in this case, they did a series of assassinations against Polish officials, for example, because the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists wanted a Ukrainian state that was purged of um, other ethnicities with flexibility over how much assimilation may happen, with some wanting there not to be any minorities, that assimilation was undesirable. And others that would say that if you're loyal to Ukrainian state, you're fine. The split between the more liberal nationalisms of the 19th, early 20th centuries and the more fascistic nationalisms of the 20s and onwards. Then we have World War II happen. Second Polish Republic is destroyed. And within the broader World War II, there was another war between Poles and Ukrainians. At least that is how uh, the Ukrainian historiography would describe it, a kind of mutual combat. Poles, however, would describe it as being much more one-sided, of Ukrainians slaughtering Poles with minimal uh, fighting going the other direction of Poles against Ukrainians. I'm not going to take a very strong stance here. There were elements of Polish society that were hyper-nationalistic and fascistic themselves and did do horrible things to Ukrainians in the interwar period. I, again, I, I have a hard time discussing this all this in the time I want to say, but basically this led to the Volinia massacres where Ukrainian nationalists under 
the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and the Ukrainian insurgent army killed several tens of thousands of Polish uh, civilians, with Poles also doing killing in the other direction, but in much, much, much smaller number. This Volinia genocide is a serious scar on the Polish people, a people who had undergone many, many uh, tragedies in the 20th century and before, and continues to be a point of contention between the Polish and Ukrainian governments that have mostly gone uh, underground during this war because Poland just wants to be 100% pro-Ukraine and all that. But these um, complications still linger, we'll call them. Uh, the first of which, and really the main one that comes up in a real concrete way, is that Poland wants to do more exhumations of the graves of Poles in uh, Ukraine uh, for investigative purposes, um, reburying them if necessary, uh, so they're not just in these mass graves. And the Ukrainian government has wanted there to be more reciprocity, where the Poles also recognize uh, the crimes that they did to Ukrainians and allow Ukrainians to do research uh, into those crimes within the borders of modern-day Poland, including, for example, Operation Vistula, where the Pol Polish government uh, relocated many Ukrainians and um, other ethnic groups that may or may not consider themselves Ukrainian, um, Wemkos, for example, to other parts of Poland that were given to them uh, in the wake of World War II from Germany. These former German territories were to a large extent emptied of Germans and replaced with Poles and Ukrainians and others uh, from the border territories between Poland and Ukraine. So Ukraine basically wants this commemoration to be much more both sides, while Poland wants it to be much more about Ukrainian crimes uh, against Poles. And this has been ongoing. And Zelensky was at this commemoration of the Volinia genocide, paying his respects to those who were, who were killed. And as a show of faith of the Ukrainian people in their Polish friends and how these are all historical questions that can be answered between friends, unlike the historical questions that need to be answered between Ukrainians and Russians, which are about Russian aggression and Ukrainian responses to that aggression. So one of these is answering historical questions between friends. The other is uh, lingering animosities between enemies. And the close relationship between Poland and Ukraine at the moment is likely to also evolve into further understandings about uh, the darker aspects of Ukrainian Polish history as well because those are the kinds of things that can be discussed maturely by people who respect each other. Zelensky is not the first Ukrainian president to do this, of course. Um, I think all of them have done it at one time or another, but this feels more serious than in the past. And finally, about Turkey. Turkey has been the most consequential of these visits. Turkey has been really playing both sides of this war. On one hand, they are a NATO country. They have been supplying Ukraine with various supplies. Of course, remember the Bayraktar drones, which are not as much of a factor now as they were in the start of the war due to many of them having been shot down by now. But those Bayraktar drones are still remembered fondly and lead to a good impression of Turkey with Ukraine. But at the same time, Turkey also is a facilitator for a lot of Russian smuggling around uh, Russian getting around various sanctions. It, they have a very independent and multidimensional foreign policy, we can say. But this meeting with Turkey now was extremely pro-Ukraine. So first, of course, they gave their support for Ukraine joining NATO. But the main thing that came out of it was the prisoners from Azovstal were allowed to return to Ukraine. So why were they in Turkey? So the commanders at Azovstal in Mariupol, the very famous last stand battle defending the last fortress in the fortress itself of Mariupol, as of the Azov regiment, the Marines, other military units who were defending the city against the first major loss of the Russian invasion. Their commanders and many of their soldiers were captured. 
But since then, there had been many, been many prisoner releases, including of the commanders of Azovstal, the Sozen, Zov Regiment, Marine Commanders, etc. And but they were allowed to be released on the um, requirement that they remain in Turkey and not return to Ukraine, where these <laughs> really larger than life heroes. Uh, would be able to train more soldiers, rally the spirits together, really kind of be uh, totems for Ukrainian victory. They, I mean, they're obviously very inspiring figures just to be around if you're a Ukrainian soldier. Russia did not want that, so they had to stay in Turkey. And now Erdogan says, now nah, you can go home now. Just flaunting this agreement they had with Russia is spitting directly in Putin's eye. These Azovstal commanders were the reason that Russia gave for the invasion to happen. Of Azov soldiers were, you know, oppressing the Russian-speaking people of Donbass and crucifying children and all this stupid propagandistic nonsense. So they had to denazify and liberate Ukraine from these horrible, horrible people. These horrible, horrible people who, by the way, apparently were not important enough to actually keep in jail. Russia released them in order to get Medvedchuk back. The whole purpose of the war of capturing these specific people tossed aside completely in order to get one of Putin's capos back home and in safety. Entirely erasing that argument for why they would do it. Like, if anyone tells you that Russia invaded Ukraine to take care of Azov. Just say, then why do they let the Azov commanders free if it was so important? But at least they were not in Ukraine from Putin's point of view. At least they were tucked safely away in Turkey. And that's just no longer the case. Any victory that they may have squeezed out of there of saying that they destroyed the Azov Nazis is now irrelevant, erased. There's still plenty of prisoners from Azovstal and Mariupol in uh, Russian prison camps. Not everyone was freed. There's still many people still suffering under Russian captivity, but these were the main ones. Next up with Turkey is the grain deal. Um, the grain deal to secure exports of Ukrainian grain out into the world expired. And Turkey gave its assurances that they would continue this grain deal, continue being the guarantor of allowing Ukrainian ships to not be harassed by Russia, of uh, doing the necessary checks and all that in order to get Ukrainian grain out into the world, both allowing the Ukrainian state to get the funding from these sales, a massive part of the Ukrainian economy, and on the flip side of that, a massive source of the world's food production. This is an extraordinarily sensitive topic for um, the whole world. Countries who are otherwise not very bothered by the war, they care about the grain deal because all that other stuff of you know Europeans fighting each other is you can set that aside when you're uh, thousands of kilometers away. But what you can't set aside is suddenly the price of bread spiking, and the price of bread spiking never is good for a government. And is something that they want to prevent at all costs. Ukrainian grain is a major source of Egypt, especially very volatile country politically. Uh, Indonesia, much of Africa, Middle East, Asia, like less so Europe. Um, it's not as vital to the European food supply as these other countries that have very uh, precarious food supply issues already. So securing this grain deal is of very strong global importance, and Turkey gave its backing to it again. But the flip side of this is that Russia says that this grain deal is over. They did not get what they wanted, and so will resume attacks on Ukrainian shipping. They've said this before, and before they called their bluff, and they snapped back into line. Now they're saying that in exchange for allowing the grain deal to go back into effect, they want to be reconnected to the SWIFT system, the international banking system, and they want um, restrictions on their exports uh, lifted. These things will not happen. So Russia is now saying that they will fire upon uh, ships leaving Ukrainian ports through the Black Sea. The very serious threat. 
but they've not done so yet. So far, it could just be a bluff. And it will all come down to what Turkey here does. If Turkey, for example, decides to send warships in through the Black Sea to patrol the route that these grain ships take, Russia's not going to fire on Turkey. That's NATO. That's starting a war with NATO, something that they actually don't want to do at all. So Turkey taking a swing towards the Ukrainian side of things right now is quite vital for keeping this, this grain deal uh, secure, these, these, these trade routes to export, to sell grain to the world. We also have to think about Romania, about Bulgaria, but Turkey is the main power that Russia will not mess with. And ultimately, right now we're in a position where Russia, Putin, has been insulted multiple times, and each time he backs down. Wagner Group, the Wagner Group coup, Putin mostly backed down. The release of these Azovstal prisoners, what could Russia do about that? The ascension of Sweden into NATO, almost left that out, is that Turkey ended up finally giving its approval for Sweden to join NATO. Russia's helpless. And I think that trend will continue. Putin, particularly Russia broadly, is not in a great position to make its demands enforced. Turkey seems like it smells blood. I'm not going to give Erdogan credit for being a great humanitarian or whatever, uh, supporting Ukraine out of the goodness of his heart. But he sees Russia and Putin's regimes particularly in a very weak position that can be taken advantage of, and he will push this advantage as much as he can, because that's just what Erdogan is. He is a bastard, but bastards have a particular talent for handling other bastards sometimes. And now for our last main segment, um, an update on another topic from last episode. Victoria Amelina, the very much beloved writer, journalist, war crimes researcher, civil rights defender, did succumb to her wounds that she received as a result of a Russian missile attack on Kramatorsk on June 27th. About a dozen people were killed in this attack including uh, two 14-year-old sisters. We went over some of the information about this last time. We said that Victoria was in serious condition, but alive, but she did not make it. Uh, the news that came out afterwards was that she went into a coma very shortly after uh, she was injured and did not come out of it. If you follow Ukrainian media throughout this last two weeks or so, everyone has done some kind of retrospective about Victoria. I did not know her, so I cannot do any justice to the ones done by people who did. I knew her work. I've spent much of these last two weeks rereading it, but I can't say that I share in the same type of pain that her friends and family and colleagues do. In the lead-up to her death, the last project she worked on was publishing the diary of Vladimir Vekulenko. We're talking we're talking about this episode, um, a children's writer, not only children's, but also children's writer, who was presumed dead after his city was occupied by the Russians, but then later confirmed to be dead when his body was found in a mass grave. Victoria went uh, and found his diary buried under a cherry tree, and it will uh, soon be published. One of the things that she talked about a lot and has been highlighted in these weeks was this idea of the executed renaissance. During the Stalinist terror, one of the groups targeted was the group of Ukrainian intellectuals, academics, artists who were beginning to thrive in the late part of the 19th century and early 20th century, including under uh, Soviet rule, there was something called the, the Silver Age of literature. Um, that was all ended when Stalin killed them all. In a broader pattern of Russian hostility against Ukrainian culture, uh, really for centuries, it had taken different forms. But one of the underlying things that we've seen time and time again in this war is Russia's outright hostility towards the very existence of Ukrainian culture. Ukrainians can be dumb peasants digging in the dirt, but in order to become real people, they have to become Russians. So the idea of 
a Ukrainian high culture, Ukrainian poetry, Ukrainian painting philosophy is anathema to the Russian view of the world. And we're seeing this again. Uh, we have seen numerous dead artists and writers killed by Russia, their works destroyed. And it's just a repeat of what has always been. So they've kind of been stopping short of calling it, you know, a full executed renaissance in the Stalin sense of the word, because this time around, Putin does not have control of Ukraine like the same way that Stalin had control over Ukraine, and therefore did not have necessarily the tools to carry out a massacre of that level. Though, of course, we know that there were plans to do so. If Kiev was taken, there were kill lists, they, people have been rounded up and shot. And in this case, the Ria Lounge in Kramatorsk, the city where the attack happened, it was a gathering place for journalists and various um, aid workers, soldiers, that kind of thing. And it had become a real hub for people telling Ukraine's story. And it was specifically targeted because of that. We have evidence that it was specifically targeted. This was not just Russia lobbying a shell into a town and seeing where it landed, but a direct attack on this uh, ad hoc cultural hub. The other people within the restaurant were some Colombian writers that Vika had taken to the city to see the war. Uh, they survived, injured, of course. So this attack was meant to kind of kill some of the intellectual strength of the Ukrainian nation. So Victoria, rest in peace. May your blood be avenged. But I want to read one of your poems now, a poem about a crow. It was used in her, um, a lot of the commemoration around her. In a barren springtime field stands a woman dressed in black, crying her sister's names. Like a bird in the empty sky, she'll cry them all out of herself. The one that flew away too soon, the one that had begged to die, the one that couldn't stop death. The one that has not stopped waiting, the one that has not stopped believing, the one that still grieves in silence. She'll cry them all into the ground as though sowing the field with pain, and from pain in the names of women, her new sisters will grow from the earth, and again will sing joyfully of life. But what about her, the crow? She will stay in this field forever, because only this cry of hers holds all those swallows in the air. Do you hear how she calls each one by her name? Rest in peace, Vika. We are now going to close off this episode with a question from one of our members. We highly encourage you to send in questions. Um, we may just answer them within messages, but uh, we'll, we can also really want to make this more a part of the series as answering uh, member questions on air. Uh, partially just because we want to hear what people want to know more about. Uh, no matter what, it doesn't have to be about the war, it could be just something random about Ukraine that you may be curious about. And in this one, it's about cluster munitions. Um, cluster munitions are a type of uh, munition uh, that is kind of like a grenade. It'll be fired um, long range, and before it hits the ground, it kind of scatters into uh, smaller explosives. So here's the question. I'd really like to understand more of what Ukrainians think about cluster munitions, specifically because National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the following, Ukraine would not be using these munitions in some foreign land, Mr. Sullivan said. This is their country they're defending. These are their citizens they're protecting, and they are motivated to use any weapon system they have in a way that minimizes risk to those citizens. While Jake Sullivan may be the NSA, I'd be more interested in hearing how Ukrainians themselves feel about this rather than Jake telling me how they do. Um, in this case, I am not Ukrainian like Romeo is, so it's hard to say, like, um, speak for Ukrainians. But in this case, everything I'm hearing is that receiving these cluster munitions is a good thing. Um, so here's what the controversy is. Uh, cluster munitions, because of how I describe them, basically a, a giant grenade shell, uh, it leaves behind a lot of these uh, small explosives on the ground that do not necessarily explode and can be tripped at a later time. So in this case, they may be very dangerous, uh, and especially uh, urban or areas or areas with a lot of children that may stumble upon one of these um, mini bombs 
and think it's a toy. And next minute they're missing hands, legs, or life entirely. Uh, they think about them in the same way you think about landmines. They are a weapon that can leave behind these explosives after the war is long over. So that's the concern about them. And because of that, there is a treaty to ban the use of cluster munitions entirely. So if you're hearing them referred to as a war crime, that's what they're referring to. It's a violation of this anti-cluster munition treaty. However, in the way international law works is that for something to be illegal, you have to actually sign up onto the statute that makes it illegal. There is something called customary law, which is basically the general understandings that don't require a treaty to be law, kind of like how you see common law work. But this is not one of those cases. And Ukraine is not party to the anti-cluster munition treaty. Neither is Russia. Neither is the United States who would be supplying these cluster munitions. None of the parties involved ban this weapon. Therefore, it is not against international law. That simple. I've seen comments saying like, oh, you have to sign up onto something before for it to be illegal. Yes, that is literally what a law is. And in the case of international law, it is all on a state level. The actor in international relations is the state. And if a state does not sign a treaty that says that something is illegal, in most cases, it does not apply to them. The United States does not sign on to many of these treaties. Neither does Russia. In many cases, neither does China. Unfortunately, the countries that are most likely to use the most dangerous weapons are also the countries that don't sign onto the treaties banning the use of those weapons. Surprise, surprise, that's how it works. But looking at it beyond the legal issue into the moral issue, yes, cluster munitions are dangerous. They are a danger that lingers after the war, like I said. They can litter an area with explosives that can kill people that you don't want to be killed. But the way these are being used is that they are firing into areas that essentially are minefields. These attacks into the Russian lines, into the Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblasts, the Donetsk Oblast, Luhansk Oblast, these are areas that are so heavily mined that, quite frankly, shooting another mine into it is not going to change things all that much, except for killing Russians. The faster this war ends, the fewer explosives are in Ukraine, the less people die. And cluster munitions, hopefully, could help with that. And cluster munitions are already being used. This is not a new addition to the war. It is not an escalation. It is not novel. Russia has been using cluster munitions this entire time. The attack on the Kramatorsk train station, for example, from early in the war when people were trying to escape Kramatorsk to go to Kiev or Lviv or anywhere else other than the front line, Russia shot cluster munitions at this area, killing a large number of civilians that were trying to escape. If you go to a lot of these frontline towns, you see where cluster munitions were used from the, the pattern of explosions that hit around them, this, this flowery pattern that, that surrounds them. They're, so they're not new. Ukraine has even been using them, though they have far, far less of them than Russia and has been using them far, far less as a consequence. So my final take there is, are cluster munitions problematic? Yes, absolutely. But on the ranking of problems, they're not at the top. And they're not illegal, despite so many people saying them erroneously because they do not understand international law. So with that, we'll be closing out this week's episode. If you would like to support us, tell all your friends about us, rate us, like us, five stars, reviews. If you would like to support Ukraine more broadly, you can go to our link tree in the description and link down our Twitter profile. Follow us on Twitter for who knows how much longer before that site evaporates. We don't really know where else to promote. We're most mostly promoting on Twitter, so who knows what will happen when that all burns to the dust. If you'd like to support us financially, you can go to patreon.com slash Ukraine Without Hype and join one of our tiers. So now I'd like to thank all of our supporters who make everything possible. 
Thank you very much to Deborah Grazer, Will Stevens, David Shepard, Dawson, Giorgio, Ivana Kokratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Devi, Etienne, Jan, Jenny, Justin Devendorf, Kevin Albritton, Michael Wickman, Mike Perone, Sam Tolman, Shield Wall, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDowell, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Big Rob, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Crystal Burns, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Bavona, Eric Honnold, Grace Krause, Had to Laugh, Jacob Poem, James Wise, Jurd, Julia Lindsay, Laura DeLeon, Levy Grove, Marguerite, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, MJ Noster, Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, Sanjay, Scott Berry, Scott Gengris, Scott Tarkiuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, T. Bart, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica, and Victoria Leontineva. Thank you all very much for your support. And until next week, Slava Ukraini!